right, what's up, everyone? Welcome to episode number 247 of Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries for, uh, what, Friday, April 1st. Oh, April Fool's! Yeah. Never mind. That's all the time we got, guys. Have a good rest of your night. Bye. Uh, just kidding. No, unfortunately, we have a long, long ways to go before we can say those words. Um, this is actually, uh, we're, we're, uh, did want to make this announcement that is dead serious. Um, this podcast is being changed to the uh, Will Smith Slapped Kid Rock podcast, and we'll be covering all things surrounding the Will Smith and Chris Rock incident. No, I I, I am completely fucking done talking about that. Like, I thought they would, you know, move on to the next thing, but this is still being talked about days later and updated and all this stuff. Like, Will Smith's third apology. What is he going to go on an apology tour? Like, I, I just don't really... Give a shit. Don't care. It was shocking. It was surreal. It was insane when it happened. But it's over. Yeah. Um, I'm tired of the memes. Like, yeah. uh, you know, um, the first, like, wave of memes, it was like, all right. You know, I even made a meme, you know, myself just to uh-huh. pr- promote my band, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, um. And man, like my ex-girlfriend, for instance, like she posts, she's posted like at least 20 uh-huh. Will Smith, Chris Rock memes at this point, like through, through the, over the span of like since Sunday. And yeah. I messaged her, I was like, enough with the fucking Will Smith, Chris Rock memes already. Like, God damn, bro. It's played out. And she's like, what? They're funny. And it's like, no, it's, it's like overdone. My quick take on that is uh, I thought Will Smith was completely in the wrong. You never physically. Oh, yeah. You never physically hit somebody for any like any reason unless your life is in danger. I mean, that opens up a a giant can of worms for comedians, too. It's like, oh, so now it's acceptable for some guy in the audience to just walk up and smack me in the face because he didn't like a joke that I said. Right. And I mean, (laughs) it's like, you know, can you imagine that when you were doing stand up? (laughs) Oh, people, I mean, yeah, people would heckle you and shit if you, if you, uh, if they didn't like what you were doing. I mean, one time this guy. But I'm saying like get up on stage. Oh, get up and actually like, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, no, that'd be, uh, that'd be a whole new dynamic right there because I mean. How would you react if you were doing a set and then someone just walked up and just smacked you in the face? I don't, oh, dude, if someone slaps me, like. A slap is not like a punch. Like a yeah. punch can actually like it's mm-hmm. like brute force and it'll it can it can do some mm-hmm. damage. A slap that just that just pisses you off more than anything else. It it it, it depends cuz there are like these professional like slap fighters or something and like they have some that really must be hard a, That slaps. must be a sport in France. It's actually an American thing, I think. Oh, sounds like a yeah. French a French thing that the French would be into. Um, <laughs> but no, you should you should never do that. I mean, it, you know, when Jada Smith rolled her eyes or whatever, like it's like, yeah, that's roll your eyes, be like that was in shitty taste, and you know, send a mean tweet and move on. You know, yeah, you don't. Will should have talked to him after the show. Yeah, and you know, I mean, they're both. Uh, 
men in Hollywood who have probably, you know, had to work harder to get where they are and they're both successful uh-huh. in their field. So it's like you'd think there'd be a little bit more like understanding there. But man, he went after Chris Rock like that was his mortal enemy enemy and it's like Yeah. You know, I was like, shit, that's uh I'm just well, waiting. That's to- the kind of thing that happens when you are completely wrapped around someone else's finger to the point where if they have a look on their face that looks like they are upset or perturbed that you're going to go up and do something crazy like that. And it's also an ego thing. And I think will at this point with his relationship, he is uh, obsessed with proving himself. So I think that's an extension of that. Like that's him proving his manhood to his woman. That you know, is that, that is kind of a, that is not a if if that is the case as a toxic relationship. It is that's, that's never. It's one hundred percent a toxic relationship right now. You should never have to prove yourself to anybody, you know, in a relationship. You know, like you should never I, have to. Prove I agree, yourself. but it seems like that's the case because she already that uh, they cheated on him. There is a they are having an open relationship, but you know, really, what it is, it's money talks. You you divorce me, I take half or more than that. It's that kind of thing, and with these Hollywood marriages, because of the prenups and all this other stuff, it's like that uh, uh, Eddie Murphy uh, bit from uh, I think it was Raw, where he's talking about I want to get like uh, some African chick from like the jungles of Africa. And then he 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 makes uh makes it into a thing where once she figures out that she's supposed to get half, that she's gonna ask for half. <laughs> you know, if, if the relationship doesn't work out, it's like I want half, Eddie. And, <laughs> and and then it's the whole sort of thing where Eddie just thinks that's a bunch of bullshit. Like, why should the wife get half of my money? Like, what 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 has she done to deserve half of my money? And then he actually has a legitimate point. Yeah, I don't know. All I know is, is that um, I, I am on the side of the comedian in oh, in this too. case. Like, I am on the side of free speech. I am not on the side of, like, reacting violently when someone says no. something you don't like. C- could he have not went there? Sure. I, I think he didn't know uh, of her condition. He even said that. So maybe if he knew that, then maybe he wouldn't have gone there. Oh, probably but, not. I mean, yeah. I mean, if she's, you know, because like black women shave their heads sometimes yeah. as like a as a fashion choice. But and, at the same time, it was such a such a man really harmless joke. Like GI Jane two. Like that's what what gets you. Like really, that's what get, got you up in arms. I is a GI Jane I mean, two joke. <laughs> I, I knew about the movie G.I. Jane, but I, I didn't know anything about what it was about. I just Yeah, uh, it's Demi Moore. Uh, she's in the military, and she's got a shaved head. Is um, Jada Pinkett Smith even in that movie? No. It was a uh, joke. It was a reference to her bald head, because De- right. Demi Moore was bald in that movie. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, if he didn't know about but it, But I then... mean, honestly, yeah, the slap, it was, it was uh, ridiculous, but... You could be in a worse situation, like Bruce Willis, who has aphasia. I think that's what it's called, and it's a brain uh, nervous disorder. You know, uh, 
Yeah, it's a it's a disorder which makes it so he has a hard time understanding speech and talking and 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 uh, difficulties with cognitive uh, ability, which is why uh, he's retiring. That sucks. And it, that's why his he did all these direct video movies is because he wanted to get all the money he could before he couldn't act anymore, because he he was having to. Uh, Issues with remembering lines. Uh, there were people uh, in recent films that he's done. They've said that like he had to wear an earpiece so they could feed him lines and stuff like that. Wow, I wonder what causes that. Well, I've heard it could happen uh, due to uh, traumatic brain injuries. Uh, people have had uh, aphasia uh, after they have. Um, dealt with a stroke and uh, in his case i don't think he had a stroke but he did get hit in the head with a projectile when he was shooting the film tears of the tears of the sun and he said like afterwards like he just felt different like he's always felt different since that day when he got hit in the head with a projectile so that might have just been the start of it and then it just slowly got worse over time until it's the point that it is now I mean, hopefully it's there's treatment for it or something. There is, but it's just one of those things where it just, from what I've read, it rarely gets significantly better. So it's just one of those things you just have to deal with. Which makes sense because it's a brain, it's, it's, it's related to an injury to the brain. So... Oh, that's depressing. Um, in yeah. other new, in other news, we're in about a, to talk. Uh, go, go ahead. <laughs> in other depressing news, <laughs> yeah, in other depressing news. Um, <laughs> so on our Patreon, we have this whole thing where, like, if you are contributing at least five dollars a month, you can uh, request uh, a show, an episode of something, a topic for us to talk about. Um, our longtime Patreon, Deirdre, requested an entire series. And I have got to make a caveat now as of that happening. Uh, we're no longer going to do entire docu-series. <laughs> this took a long time. Mike's not even done yet. He's only on yeah, episode five. I'm only on episode five. I'm going to say this. I, I don't think docu-series are off limits. It's just it, it, it takes a, a lot of time and a lot of extra research and a lot of that kind of stuff and in order to do a uh, podcast about a series like this. So it's something that we will consider, but it's also one of those things where uh, I I think, I I think it's one of those things where we feel like we should have a little bit more compensation. Is that, is that what you're trying to to go for? I mean, yeah, if someone (laughs) wants us to cover a series next time, it's going to be like 50 bucks. (laughs) This was like seven, this was over seven hours uh, of my time. Now, granted, Deirdre's been a Patreon for a long time, so I make an exception for her. But um, yeah, um, okay, so this- We are very late to the game on this series. Right. This this aired in 2017. It It was a Netflix original docuseries. Um, and I, I was telling was, I was telling Mike earlier it even has that early next Netflix yeah. uh, like original feel where they didn't have as much content and they were just kind of 
grabbing whatever they kind of could to call it, yeah. you know, a Netflix original. Or ne- yeah, you they, know, were, they were stretching things out. They've since upped their game with their with their originals, um, you know, like Squid Game, obviously, and, and shows like that. They've upped their game in their curation. But um, uh, I guess I'm saying all that to say uh, in, a, in a nice way, what I'm really trying to say is... Um, this movie is, or this docu series, is about very serious subject matter, and yes. and and it is absolutely heartbreaking what happened to these people. And I, I fucking hope that justice can be had for the man and the women who were assaulted and all that. With that all being said, this documentary itself was an utter snooze fest. <laughs> It was it was uh, very very uninteresting to watch for the most part most of the time. Um, it was rather boring. There were uh, a lot of there was a lot of stuff that could have been cut. Absolutely, one hundred percent. There was a lot of um, there was a lot of speculation and conjecture mm-hmm. that normally wouldn't even make it into a normal yes. documentary. And then there was a lot of stuff too that was just repeating things and rehashes to the point where you're like you're like, is this a documentary for morons at times? Like like what are we doing? Why are we repeating things <laughs> like multiple times? To me, this is one of the, the worst this is one of the worst symptoms of the docuseries is when you could have taken something and boiled it down into a fantastic two hour, hour, hour twenty minute, yeah, uh, documentary. You had to take it and you had to stretch it out into uh, over seven hours. And I just—it's because of the trend, which was uh, binge watching, right? So they yeah, stretched wa- it out to to get the watch time. Um, that's why you see a lot more videos on YouTube that are like video essays and they're like two hours long. And I'm like, I'm not fucking sitting down watching a two hour video about idiocracy and how much you don't like the movie. And you think the statement that it's like a documentary is, is, uh, is so horribly incorrect Wow, this is a very specific example you're bringing it up, is, Mike. <laughs> because it's a recent documentary. It was something that was recommended to me on YouTube. And it's like, I'm not fucking watching that. Uh, so, they, whoever made that video just sounds like they're trying to be a contrarian douchebag. Like, I can't stand contrarians. Like, people who just, they have to say the opposite of what, like, the popular opinion is, you know. And it's not like everybody talks about idiocracy. But, I mean, really, the movie is... I mean, I mean, the I statement, it's like a documentary, was never intended to be taken seriously to begin with. You're making an entire video about that? Like, yeah, most people, when they say that, it's as a joke. Right. But, I mean, it's <laughs> not too far off from the truth, in my opinion. I mean, Well, shit. in some ways, yes. And in some ways, it's not. And, that, and I mean, you could take a movie like Don't Look Up or whatever it's called, and, yeah. and you could draw the comparison there as well. You know, yeah. like, it's it, it's like a, the dumbing down of our society, mm-hmm. and we ignore... Uh, these existential threats that are, you know, yeah. uh, looming over us or whatever, you know, it's like, 
I th- I like I like those yeah. kind of movies, you know, because I, I happen to agree. I happen to agree yeah. that society is getting dumbed down. But yeah, with the whole binge thing, like that was the trend. I, I think this was released after uh, the murderer one. What was it? Uh, um, was it making a murderer? Is that what it was called? Yeah, I think that's what it was called. That was like the first big Netflix docu series, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I, ju- I just finally, like a year or two ago, went and watched all of that. And, and, and yeah, it is kind of the same way. I mean, it's like it was mm-hmm. it was more entertaining that or I shouldn't entertaining is the wrong word. I don't want to say I, I felt that making a murder was more engrossing consistently. That's the word I guess I'm looking for. Captivating, engrossing. Yes. I don't I'm not saying that I like getting entertainment from people's tragedy. It, it's it's more of like, wow, that's fascinating. I want to learn more kind of thing. Yeah, and I felt that in making a murderer there was more evidence and there were more layers and there were more things that the series could divulge and discuss than the keepers because there was a lot of stuff that was just speculation like you said a lot of things where they didn't really have all the pieces they didn't really have all the evidence so they were just trying to fill in the blanks the best they could so it's a series directed by ryan white and from a technical standpoint it's it's a decent docuseries uh it's it's got good production values it's fairly well edited even though there are things that i think could be cut out that doesn't mean that it's a poorly edited docuseries um and it does have other elements that work like the music and so on but it's a series that is very drawn out and i i know some people don't like this term being used because they think that this term equals something being bad but i came away from what i've seen so far thinking this is pretty overrated and overhyped and just not nearly as good of a docuseries as people have been making out to be maybe it's one of those things where it was great for the time maybe like oh my god i've never seen a docuseries this comprehensive maybe that was it my my whole thing too is like Anytime you're talking about a murder that happened, like, let's say over 30 years ago, that really loses me right right then and there because it's like, this murder happened, like, over 50 years ago, and it's just like, dude, so many people, like, witnesses or accomplices or people who would know anything have either died or they're developing Alzheimer's or they're developing dementia. And it's like, uh, it's like you're talking about this, like, beyond cold case and, and like, you know, people's memories tend to get all wackadoo as they get older and they change and they misremember things and they... And I'm just sitting, you know, like, shit, even watch, like watching Unsolved Mysteries and we're, we're talking about a murder from, like, 1986. I'm like, yeah. Jesus Christ, this is a long, that was a long time uh-huh. ago. But this is like... But in Unsolved Mysteries, it's only, like, 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, exactly. It's only 10 or 15 minutes of your time. Can you imagine having one of those, like, cold cases covered on that show? No matter how interesting it is in, like, 10 to 15 minutes getting stretched out to seven hours? Like, you'd just be like, no. 
this is well they would do that back then every now and then but but you got to figure that was the uh, mid 90s so when they're talking about the 60s hours that's never happened i don't remember and them ever doing that no not seven hours but i'm saying they've covered cases that took place in the 60s and shit before on there but but that was the 1990 that was only like 25 30 you know at, at max years ago it wasn't 50 Years ago, they they'd have to talk uh, talk about like well actually they have they have talked about uh, World War Two like the World War Two yeah. not Nazi treasure yeah um, but that's that's interesting as fuck come on who doesn't want to you know learn about that um, rather watch a seven part miniseries about World War Two Nazi treasure oh god for, uh, forget about it I love World War Two <laughs> and Nazis just joking <laughs> I, don't, I don't love Nazis um. I did not see that comment coming out of my mouth. Um, oh man! But no, like um, you know, it, it it did have its its points of like. Uh, okay, so I will say this: like episode one was like the worst way yes. they could have launched. Episode one this was a ep- summary this. of the case for dummies. That's really what it felt like. It's like here are the players, here are the key players, here are the people that you're going to be following throughout this series. Here's the details of the murder and the disappearance and uh, all of this. Then they give you some details of like what might be lying under the surface. Like there might there's something more to this than just your typical murder case. And they leave you hooked and then they go into way more detail. And then the, the series becomes more compelling overall because they start divulging details that just make this into uh, a massive cover-up and then they detailed uh, abuse and the uh, severity of it which is just extreme and absolutely insane and then they continue kind of doing that with the third episode and then episode four which we'll get to because we're going to talk about the first four episodes that's when they kind of just talk about the the trial many, many years later where they're trying to get some kind of justice for what happened. But because of the statute of limitations and so on, it, it's difficult to do so. And there's a lot of footage from back in the day from like the 90s that covers the case uh, and the trial so it, it it's one of the, it's one of the, that one is more similar to episode one for me. Like episodes two and three, even though three was a little bit too long at times, uh, those are the ones that I've seen so far that I would say were the most compelling, the most interesting. Yeah, I would say episode two was the most compelling to me. Um, you learn that the Catholic priest, yes. uh, Father it, Maskell, is yeah. uh, is a real masshole. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And we'll, we will uh, get into that. But another thing I was going to say about the first episode, which was just like the worst pilot of a, of a show, <laughs> um, they start out with like these two like older women who are like grandma age and like it... it <sighs> I'm like watching this going like, am I watching like a uh, like two bored older women who started a Facebook group and and they're the ones that are going to be like knocking on doors and 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 you know carrying around magnifying gla- glasses looking at shoe prints it's in the snow be a, like a murder she wrote spinoff 
<laughs> yeah, but I mean, no, it looked. I'm like, man, like I, I hope they bring in some more heavy like hitters that actually, you know, were involved more officially involved in this rather than you know these two people who uh, had um, Sister Sesnick as their yeah. uh, teacher. I'm like, man, I'm hoping they bring in like some like cops and detectives and and they do, they do eventually, but. Again, they don't they don't really tease any of that very well. No, it's like they don't. It, how it, it starts off very uh very weak, very like uh And the tone is kind of weird too cuz you know you have these two old you know ladies who are into solving mysteries. Might as well be driving around in a Scooby-Doo van, driving around in the mystery machine. And it it, it almost has this sort of lighthearted tone at times and it's like really serious subject matter and you're kind of like okay all right yeah like i feel like they're feel like they're like baking cookies at some point or something it might not be the best uh, approach but i can see why they focused on them because this was probably trying to tap into the true crime phenomenon you know people who were who were really into true crime and just the idea of oh I could help solve a cold case. I could so- help solve a mystery. You know, I could I could do it from Facebook. I, I got to tell you, I got to tell you internet. man, like I know we do a true crime podcast technically, but I have absolutely zero desire to go out and try to solve a crime. I am not a trained investigator. I am not a tra- uh-huh. I'm not even a trained police officer who even a police officer has some degree of investigative yeah. uh, sense to them. Um, I, I have no desire to, so therefore I'm not really interested in these, um, you know, armchair detectives. Um, I know I, I, I totally get it. And, but I can see why this tapped into a, a, a vein for some people. Where yeah. Cause some people are really liked it. Yeah. Some people really do want to like, some people do listen to serial and then they go out and they want to be a junior detective or whatever. But I just, uh. Um, I feel this you. Isn't I really... don't want to do that either because I just I just feel like you know uh, I have no I have no experience I have no yeah. training I don't know what to look for I mean I I mean like shit I I wasn't there I don't you know I don't but know at least they to... did have a connection to the the woman that was murdered at least they have a connection at least right. it's not like some random people that read about the case and then decided let's solve it like that's not you know, they did yeah. have some actual connection to it. So another, another thing that I couldn't believe is that um, so many of these people stayed in Baltimore their entire lives. Yeah. It kind of kind of gave me like an existential yeah. crisis because it's like, man, am I am I going to be that guy who's like <laughs> on some future, whatever the future form of uh, streaming is or whatever? Uh. I'm all old and gray and, and looking haggard as fuck. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember. uh I remember going to karaoke back in 2022. I was there. I was there. I saw him. He was a nice man. I was a damn shame what happened to him. Of course, that was 50 years ago. You know, it's like, ugh, I, I really hope that I'm not <laughs> that guy st- still uh, living in fucking Jacksonville. <laughs> so anyway, the first episode cool. is called The Murder. It uh, deals with the murder of Kathy Sesnick, a 26-year-old nun and beloved high school teacher who was murdered in Baltimore, but the crime was never solved. The first episode lays out the facts of the case, as well as introduces the 
former students of Sister Caffey's who are well uh, into their 60s at the time, who are trying to piece together the clues. Um, you have a journalist named Tom Nugent who wrote a story in the murder years ago. And he's the one that you were first introduced to. He's just hanging out in the attic, yeah. somebody's attic. He's like hanging without- out. With all his hoarding, yeah. his hoarder tendencies, all of his all of his crap around him, I'm like, all right, uh, crazy Uncle uh, Tom is uh, in the in the in the basement or in the attic again. Someone get the the broom, you know. <laughs> so he's hanging out in the attic and he's reading from a, an article that he wrote decades ago on the case. Uh, then you have Sesnick's uh, former students, Gemma. Uh, and Abby, uh, those are the ones that are, are uh, taking it upon themselves to try to solve the case. So Gemma is the one that asks a lot of the questions. Abby is the one who's the research lady. She does a lot of the research for for uh, the investigation. She even has like a, a file folder and a system where she has all this information and like a bin. Uh, and Gemma's just the one that's like a bulldog and she just asks questions and is not afraid to ask anyone anything. And they, they talk about how they set up a Facebook page for people who are similarly obsessed with the case to provide uh, more information. Uh, the details in the case are told through a variety of voices. You have Sister Kathy. Uh, what the? No, don't worry about it. <laughs> so, so the details of the case are told through a variety of voices. You have Sister Kathy. They uh, introduce you to her, who she was, why she was so loved by her students. And the, and, the, and the episode does a good job fleshing her out and making her definitely someone that seemed like she was a legitimately good person. Yeah. Like, you could see why her students loved her so much and why she was such a big loss. Because she was just someone who loved life and loved other people. But she was also... It seems like she was not afraid to uh, actually do something about things. Like when things started to to uh, turn south at the school, when things started to get really bad and students were talking about how they were being treated, like she was not afraid to actually stand up for them. Be an, be an advocate for the students against the, her own, you know, church. Yeah. Which is like, you know... Especially, especially back then, that was a huge no-no. Oh, absolutely. So, uh, it talks about uh, how she was really bright, passionate. Uh, she made uh, texts like Romeo and Juliet and the Scarlet Letter come alive for her students. Because that was something that was a little... I don't know if risque is the right word, but it is definitely something for probably a church... Uh, owned and church-led high school, that was probably a little controversial to like have like Romeo and Juliet and the Scarlet Letter in in the teachings. Um, but on Friday of November seventh, nineteen sixty nine, Caffey left work around three o'clock p.m. 
and returned to the apartment she shared with another nun, Sister Russell. This was another thing that was very uh, abnormal, or maybe abnormal isn't the right word, but it was something they didn't see happen that often in the church, that someone like Kathy and the other sister would leave the church and go stay in an apartment and then teach at public school. Like they actually went to their, their superior. We're like, Hey, we don't really connect with these kids legitimately because we are so connected to the church. We don't have any, uh, uh, experience in public school with a lot of things. What the, uh, girls are actually dealing with. So we are kind of up in the clouds and we're having a hard time connecting with them. So they were like, Hey, can we go teach public school so we can get that experience? So then we can go back to Keo and then we can bring that to the students. And the superior actually signed off on it by that. that that's a pretty big deal for, for uh, that time in, in, in the late sixties. So, Sure, sure. They were, they were staying together. They were teaching at a at a public school. Uh, she told multiple people she was going to buy an engagement gift for her sister that night. Seemed excited about it. Sister Kathy supposedly left her apartment parking lot around 7 p.m., cashed her paycheck at the local bank, went to the bakery for dinner rolls, then went to the local shopping center, Edmondson Village, to buy the engagement gift. Um... Eyewitnesses saw her grocery shopping, and one believes uh, she she uh, saw her sitting in the car in the parking lot as if she was waiting for something. Accounts vary as to whether Sister Kathy ever made it back to her apartment complex after the shopping trip. Uh, I don't think she did. I don't think she even made it back. That's, that's my theory, though. Um, another former student, Mary Craig, recalls being in the area where Sisters Kathy and Russell lived. They were... Peeking into the apartment of one of their teachers, Mr. Noon, that they had a crush on. So they were peeping on this guy. <laughs> it's just kind of creepy when you think about it. And like the the Mary is just talking about it and reminiscing with this big beaming smile on her face. Like, oh, we were just trying to get a peek at him. And it's like, isn't that kind of creepy? Well, when you're an old lady, it's not creepy anymore, apparently. <laughs> I'm just like, you, saying. You, you, you get a pass. Well, I mean, like, if you switch it around and it was uh, a, an older guy talking about getting to peep at Mrs. Noon. I think it's a double standard that our society is is okay with. It's like the uh, it's like the female teacher who, like, sleeps with the 17-year-old boy and, you know, gets, like, nine, 90 days uh, probation, <laughs> you know, <laughs> instead of like 10 years in jail, like a, a male, like a male sleeping with a male teacher sleeping with a younger female. I student. mean, that doesn't always happen, but I, I can, I can kind of see where you're coming from. <clears throat> but anyway, uh, Mary and her friends, they said they heard yelling from the direction of sister Kathy's apartment. It was a man's voice, loud, booming, garbled with emotion, anger, we really thought it was some kind of violence that was going on up there. And you didn't do anything? Like, like I'd be like, I, it sound, if it sounded really emotional and angry, I don't know, maybe I'd call the cops? I. <laughs> well, I, I think I've explained it on the podcast before. That's kind of this, like, phenomenon that with uh, 
like group group think uh like a if it's like a large group of people and like say like in, in an apartment building or something and you hear like gunshots mm-hmm. outside and you don't call 911 because in your mind you're like oh so surely surely someone else is going to call cuz yeah you know. i remember you saying that but and then th- and then everybody starts thinking that and then nobody does it cuz they assume yeah. someone else did it is is going to do it yeah but in this instance like it's someone that you are genuinely close with cuz when i think of something like that it's normally a scenario where it's like someone that you it's like some stranger like it's your neighbor or whatever or someone that you're they're just in the same apartment complex. And so you just assume that somebody's going to do something. So you don't do anything. Here it's like, it's Sister Kathy. Like, you really love her. You really care about her. I don't I don't know. Like, I think I might have done something. But maybe at the same time, maybe they thought like, oh, you know, maybe it's not our, our call to make. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. They don't want to assume things. Which that's understandable as well. So at 11.30 p.m., Sister Russell started to get nervous. The Sister Kathy had not come home yet. So then she called a teacher and Sister Kathy's friend, a priest named Jerry Koob. Uh, he talks about how he and his brother Peter saw Easy Rider that night. Which I'm thinking, like, it, it, that's a pretty, like, for, like, someone who's of the cloth, who's religious. Like, it doesn't that have, like, drug use and, like... I I think that's like rated R if I remember correctly. I feel like Catholics are a little bit more uh open with uh yeah. the, the kind of stuff because like it's it's not uncommon to for the Catholic people that I know to to be very much into the uh, alcohol. Um mm-hmm. but like how I grew up like Southern Baptist there was a lot more restrictions on all that kind of stuff like yeah. watching those kind of movies would that would have been seen as like you know, not not a good not good for your Christian testimony and yeah. like drinking. And I all guess that. it just depends because I know Mormons are a lot like that too. Because I, 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 I went to to high school and like there was a Mormon who went there, and uh, I think I brought like a, a makeup effects book or something with me, and like it had like photos of like some of the gory makeup effects. And, and they were like all offended and triggered by it. Uh, I remember that, and I was like, "It's fake. It's not real. <laughs> it's all like latex and and corn syrup." But anyway, uh, this is a real case. So they uh, saw Easy Rider. Uh, at other points in this series, they talk about the relationship that Jerry had with uh, Kathy and. It was very sweet, and uh, he even talks about how he wanted to marry her. He even was thinking about quitting uh, and and not being a priest so he could marry her, but she decided to stay uh, focused on her um, studies and her um, status as a nun, so uh, that didn't work out. They would write letters to one another. She wrote a poem for him. That's how we actually get to hear her voice is from her reading a poem that I think she wrote uh, for Jerry. So uh, it's not easy to write her. They decided to call the police reporter as a missing person. Uh, Jerry said mass. He left some bread for Kathy, hoping that she would return. 
but she did not. In the early hours of the morning, the men left the apartment and noticed that Kathy's car was mysteriously parked on the street, keys in the ignition, with its rear sticking out in the, into the street adjacent to the apartment. The car was muddy, there was a twig inside near the steering wheel, and it was clear to Jerry that the car had been in a swampy area, and that whoever put it back wanted it to be found. And this is like the bit where they repeated that throughout the first part, like at least a second time, like near the end. Oh, the car was left with the keys in the ignition. It's like, I already know that. We already <laughs> have heard that. Right. Why are we repeating this? To stretch it out so it fits 40 minutes? Is that why we're doing that? Because that's what it kind of seems like. So three days later, another young woman went missing, was later found dead, Joyce Malecki. Uh, she had also gone shopping and but never returned. And her car was found unlocked with the keys in the ignition as well. She had switched cars with one of her brothers earlier that day, leaving her car with him and taking their parents' car. Joyce's body was found face down in a stream with her throat cut and hands tied behind her back. Gemma and Abby have been working with uh, Joyce's brothers to continue making connections between the two cases in the hopes that they can solve both at the same time. And the thing is... Yeah, there might be a connection, but there also very well might not be any connection to these cases at all. Like, it could just be two separate murder cases that just happen to occur at the same time in the same place. Like, that does happen. Oh, so yeah. I mean, the amount no... of times uh, through through all the true crime shows that I've watched, the amount of times where they're, like, dredging the river looking for a body and they do find a body, but it's not the body they're looking for. It's just some other poor son of a bitch mm-hmm. who died <laughs> that they never fucking identified or located. And it's like, oh, no, that's, an- that's another dead person that uh, has be- hasn't been identified. Throw them back. We're not looking for that one. We're looking for uh, this other, uh, you know, dead body. And it's like, God damn, this fucking country, man. That's where they introduce uh, John Barnold, who was the chief of uh, homicide at the time of the murders in Baltimore. Uh, He was continually quoted at the time saying that he didn't think Sister Caffey's disappearance was a kidnapping. Now, after being interviewed for the keepers, he explains that he was supervising so many robberies, homicides, sex offenses, and assaults that he couldn't devote his time to one specific case, which is not really that bad of an explanation like it makes perfect sense that he wouldn't devote like all his time to one specific case this is in the movies where like one detective just all right this case and i'm i am focusing only on this case yeah it's a pretty standard uh story you know like lack of resources and all yeah exactly happens all the time So it wasn't until mid-January of 1970 that Sister Caffey's body was finally found by hunters. She was lying on her back near a garbage dump with her skull caved in. The retired policeman on the case, James Scannell, takes uh, Gemma, uh, a a man that they met through Facebook named Alan Horn, uh, who I think was like a reporter, and the documentary crew to the spot where he found the body. Scandal is soft-spoken, and it's hard to tell if he's senile or just old. I don't know. Okay, entertainment. I think I, I think a little bit of both, honestly. Yeah. He remembers the condition of Sister Caffey's body in great detail and says, I think she was probably dumped there. She hadn't deteriorated, no maggots or anything like that. Uh, Gemma is suspicious of him and tries to see if he can help them get the full report. 
from the Baltimore Police Department, but he brushes it off, saying no one at the office would know him anymore. Which, yeah, that makes sense as well. Uh, that's what that's what that ties into what you're saying. Like it's been so long, so it's difficult to try to solve these cases after so many years for reasons like that. So the policemen, where they interview them and tell talk to uh, talk to them, and they tell their story of finding the body like that's always like very uh um harrowing to like hear just like the detail and just to see uh the look on their face when they're talking about it and just hear them say like oh that's part of the job and it just shows you how much uh the these policemen and these investigators go through uh throughout their careers like how much horrible shit they've probably seen and they have to cope with and it's amazing that a lot of them don't just have a mental breakdown like they retire and then they just break down mentally and and uh are never the same i could totally see them having probably some symptoms of ptsd i sure wouldn't be able to do it I wouldn't either. I don't think I'd have the stomach for it. I don't think I'd be able to handle it. Just seeing seeing uh, one murder scene would be, you know, enough to just make it side. Not, nope, not for me. I mean, just that one uh, uncensored sequence in uh, uh, Paradise Lost. Like, that's enough for me to be oh, like, yeah, oh, my God. Yeah, um, yeah, the beginning with showing yeah. the kids' bodies, yeah. Yeah, I was. I couldn't. I couldn't really watch that. I try. I kind of turned my head whenever possible. Like, can you imagine seeing that? Like, like almost every day. Just the whole like the the whole concept of dead bodies uh, freaked me out. You know, Mm -hmm. because it's like they still look like you know a person. They look like humans, yeah. But they're like not. And it's so heartbreaking when you hear from the people that knew the victims. And they're talking about seeing them in that state. Just awful. So it's gotta be like it's gotta be the worst. Like when it's like someone in the prime of their life, they're yeah. like a young person. They can come in, and it's like that's gotta be like fuck, dude. Come on, what were you doing? Yeah. So uh, in further conversations with journalists and Baltimore residents, people uh, come up with a theory that the person who killed Kathy knew her very, very well. And that the police and FBI likely knew more than they let on about Kathy and Joyce Malecki's deaths. But Baltimore's widespread corruption and strict hierarchies are preventing information from getting out. So, really, the most interesting stuff when it comes to episode one comes at the end, where they try to hook you in. This is this this is the typical sort of thing that they do for these binge uh, watching uh, type of shows. Is where they're like, oh, 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 you thought that was interesting or you thought that was kind of boring? Well, here's here's this. You know, we're going to keep you uh, watching because you want to see what happens next. And it it worked because I definitely did want to see what happened next with the whole corruption in Baltimore. And then they bring in Jane Doe, a witness at who uh, went to Keogh. And claims to have seen the body of Sister uh, uh, Kathy. So then I was like, okay. Alright. Let's go. Let's go with episode two. Because the first episode, it, it's just very a very dry, 
very dull, very stretched out summary of I the I remember events. upon first watching, I, I think I texted Mike, and as I was watching it, I was like, bro, this is a total snooze fest. <laughs> I know, yeah. <laughs> and then by episode two, I was like, oh, it gets better. And then it's like a roller coaster because then it gets worse, and then it gets like vaguely better, and then it then it gets worse again. <laughs> so episode two is called the school. Um, yeah, I'll I'll start reading on yeah. that one. Um, so well, we don't have to wait long to find out the identity of Jane Doe. Episode two comes right out with it. Her name is Jean Hargaden Venner, and she was raised in a quintessential Baltimore Catholic family. Full of children, extremely devout, and very involved in the city's Catholic community. Her father was a policeman. Her mother took on the role of a good Catholic wife, popping out a child every 11 months or so. A good chunk of time is spent describing how wonderful Keo was supposed to be and how excited students were to learn they'd passed the admissions test and were uh, accepted to the school. The image of this perfect school was quickly shattered, though, as Jean begins to recount her harrowing story. As a freshman, Jean says she went to confession and confided in her father, uh, in in the priest, (laughs) father, in her father, in the priest, Father Magnus, and that her uncle had sexually abused her, that, uh, well, she was telling Magnus that her uncle had sexually abused her when she was younger. But instead of trying to help Jean through this, Magnus asked her name and to look at her. In parentheses, it says, for non-Catholics, this obviously is never part of confession. And then he told her, quote, I don't really know if God can forgive this. A couple weeks later, and this is very disturbing to hear and read, so proceed with caution, Magnus and another priest, Father Maskell, uh, who held great sway in the school, called her into an office and began to sexually abuse her even further, calling their semen the Holy Spirit and uh, the Eucharist. God. Um, they were doing things like where they would... Um create the symbol of a cross with their cum and then they would oh, have God. her like eat it and mm. be like this is a holy spirit and i'm like holy shit yeah like oh my god like like i i had had an inkling when it was starting to talk about the school and they were mentioning these priests and it was catholic priests i was like this is going to go into abuse isn't it? Oh yeah. I was like, this is this is gonna start bringing in uh, accounts of sexual abuse by these priests. Anytime you hear about a documentary and it's about the Catholic Church, <laughs> I mean, that's like hearing a documentary about like uh, I don't know Scientology and it being synonymous with crazy people. I mean, the Catholic church for all intents and purposes, as far as the people who are not Catholics are concerned, it is synonymous with child abuse. Yeah. And it's just, sorry, Catholic people out there. It's awful that it's synonymous with it, but because of the fact that the Catholic church has covered up these just absolutely heinous acts for so many years and in some cases probably still do it's always going to be connected with that to me i'm sorry like i'm not going to i'm not saying that everyone who is a catholic is in support of of th- these cover ups or supports abuse no that's not the case at all 
but it's one of those things where the 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 Catholic Church as a whole, at least for me, and I'm not the only one. There's a lot of other people that feel the same way. It is going to have this connotation. It is going to have this connection. It's awful. It's disgusting. But it's also equally as awful and disgusting and sickening that the Catholic Church has put so much effort and so much energy into covering this up with what happened with the spotlight case that was then turned into the the film spotlight and then this and they just move them around in some cases with the spotlight case they moved them up they gave them a promotion that's essentially what they did they gave them a promotion and moved them up the hierarchy it almost reminds me of uh, Scientology uh, in in that religion, or I hate to call, I, forgive me for calling it a religion. In that cult, um, when there is uh, sexual abuse towards a minor by an adult, um, it is highly discouraged to go to the police because they want to handle it within Scientology. They but want that's to. The, that's the big part of the problem. Like, oh, you're going to handle it inside. Well, then you're just going to cover it up, and they don't get punish they don't actually serve the proper sentence for their sins the thing about it is is just because you're part of a religion that doesn't make you your own sovereign country inside the united states we we all live by the same sets of rules and laws and uh assaulting a minor in any kind of way is a fucking crime and that's great if you want to handle inside the church you can do that but it also needs to be handled outside the church yes. in in the courts because that is illegal yes and there's no such thing as oh well you, you're a really respected religion so okay we'll just let you handle it you know you're no, no fuck that no that's bogus so anyway, she goes on to say, he was reminding me that the things I had done weren't done to me, that I had, I had made yeah, those things Yeah, and they happen. were really fucking heinous to this poor girl. I, I mean, calling her a whore, doing all this fucking just disgusting, despicable shit, raping her, having other guys come in and rape her while they are watching what's happening... Like, how drunk on on power do you have to be to just, like, be doing this and think, like... I'm helping you. you. Well, you know it's fucked up, and you've somehow... You're so drunk on power that you've rationalized it away somehow. It's like, the amount of brainwashing that you would have to put yourself under to where you actually believe your own bullshit in that regard, is, is yeah, stunning to me. It is. Like, the extent of the abuse is just shocking. So during these quote-unquote therapy sessions, as the priests convinced a naive and traumatized gene that they were, uh, they would call her a whore and pray over her in Latin yeah. as they raped her. Quote, uh, they were powerful because they represented God, she remembers. I wanted to get out of that room, and yet I felt I had to be in the room in order to be a good person. Oof. After a while, it was just Maskell abusing her, though sometimes he'd bring people in to abuse Gene as he watched and guarded the door. Once he brought a gun, removed the bullets, and put it to Gene's temple, telling her that if her father found out she'd been, quote, whoring around, he'd do the same to her without removing the bullets. Wasn't that a cop? I thought that was a cop that did that. 
I could no, be wrong, he, but I know Maskell, there, there, Maskell, her her dad was a cop. Yeah, but there was a cop too. They she talked about how there was an instance where a cop was brought in. Yeah, that's that's later on. Yeah. <laughs> this, this poor woman's suffering does not end here. No. Um Maskell had a strange childhood of his own. Oh, don't try to make me feel bad no, for this yeah, motherfucker. Exactly. <laughs> Entertainment Weekly. Uh, <laughs> Trying to play devil's mo- advocate with the devil. No. <laughs> his mother started grooming him to be a priest at a young age. Oh, yeah, that's that's quite similar to Gene's upbringing. You're right. Um, making him say uh, mass in the front yard and use Nico wafers as make-believe communion hosts. A former altar boy, Brian Schwab, recalls that when Maskell was working as a priest in the local church, he brought a gun to the sacristy, and Brian asked why a priest needed to carry a handgun, and he said, quote, I'll never forget the look he gave me. I didn't get a look like that until years later interviewing violent offenders, he said. Yeah. <laughs> As it turned out, Gene wasn't the only Keough student suffering terrible violent abuse at the hands of Father Maskell. He preyed on other students who had histories of abuse, too. So much that when he'd call a name over the PA for a student to come to his office, a hush would fall over the class as the other girls looked on in devastation and pity, while the teacher simply said they knew Maskell was weird, but the student had to go. Quote, teachers would look down, uh, one former student recalls, they knew something was going on. I love when they're like, oh, uh, there's something weird going on, but you need to go. Like, that's just weird. That's just, you know, weird is weird out. This is fucking abuse. I'm like, currently is, working on a video about Weird Al. Like, you should say that. Like this is not weird. This is this is disturbing. This is disgusting, irreprehensible behavior. Like this this is not. No. <laughs> uh, no. What are, what are they going to do though? You know they're yeah. they're so low in the pecking order. Yeah, you know? and that's the it's thing like, that he knew he had that power, and he wielded it over the entire school. It was a power trip for this man. And so, it's also something that ties into the fact that a lot of these priests, they don't really have a lot of uh, instances where they experience the outside world the way that you know other people would. So they're very distant. They're very isolated. And that tends to create a lot of these psychosis, like a lot of these issues. Um, that's one what, of the things I hear all the time is like, oh, well, they're forced to be celibate. So they have all this pent up sexual frustration. There is some truth to that. That is a legitimate psychological uh, disorder, if I remember correctly, that's just, that was brought into the fold in the past like few decades because of all of the cases of abuse within the Catholic Church. It became an actual psychological disorder. So that's why... Abuse and the Catholic Church, they're forever going to be synonymous with one another. Because there actually well, is a psychological disorder that is based around that. I'm say- all I'm saying is uh, it-, it-, it does happen in the uh, Baptist uh, it does. C- Christian sect, but not nearly as frequent. Why? Because the pastors are not only allowed to, but encouraged to have wives that they bone, that are of a legal age, mm-hmm. and consenting. A lot different <laughs> than Father Maskell. But I also think Father Maskell was legitimately mentally ill prior to any of this. 
Like, I think he was probably born with something that just made it a lot easier for him to have these kind of power trips and have these kind of uh, psychotic breaks. Um, and right. then the whole isolation just just absolutely amplified if we're things. Gonna, if we're going to get through these parts, man, you got to let me finish. I know. I know. <laughs> it's it's a hard... It, this is the one where the like the meat of, of the right, discussion the, yeah, the, is, to be honest. Right. That that you're you're right. Episode two is probably the meatiest episode in the entire series, and I've seen the whole series, and I can tell you, uh, five through seven don't really get much better. Uh, Father Maskell was a school counselor, and he had a master's degree in school psychology. Yeah. So the horrific irony of the situation is that the very students that should have been able to go to for, that should have been able to go to for help was the ones. Uh, to- what the fuck <laughs> sentence, Josh? So the horrific irony of the situation is that the very person students should have been able to go to for help was the one tormenting them. There you go. Now you get a fucking cookie. Uh, One student, Lillian Hughes, got a job as his assistant, and he'd have her tape up her classmates' records, most of which was sexual. She now believes that when he gave her a cup of Coke every day, he was also drugging her. Her memories of the yeah. time are foggy. There's multiple women who are talking about how I don't really know what happened. So he probably abused her too. He drugged her with uh, with something in, in, in the cup of Coke and probably abused her. There's one woman who was talking about how she was hypnotized, that he would hypnotize her. And then she's like, I don't remember Probably because right. that's more more uh, instances where he abused someone. Um, yeah, it's just the extent of the abuse is just astonishing. Like as this episode just keeps going on, your jaw just keeps dropping because you're just like, "Oh my, what? Oh, holy shit! Like, oh my god!" So she does recall that Maskell put the Alfred Hitchcock movie mm-hmm. Marnie into the school's religion curriculum, mm-hmm. which centers on a woman with repressed memories of abuse. Because they're talking about how you don't want to be like Marnie. So right. go to Maskell oh, and, and tell him about your your uh, memories and, and all of these things that might have happened to you in the past. And then he uses that to torment these women. Like with uh, Jean, she told him about uh, uh, how her uncle abused her. Uh, she told him all these details about it. At a certain point in time, Maskell was then recreating the abuse. He was recreating the abuse that her uncle did to her, but with with him in the center of it all. So Because the abuse would be one of those things where she would be abused by other people, but then her uncle would like stand outside a door and just be like a protector or something. And so he would do the same thing to her. So he would be like, oh, okay, all right, I'm just going to stand here by the door. You're going to see me as a protector while so- all these other people are doing all this horrible stuff to you. Right. So um, another note on Maskell, not only was he the chaplain for the Maryland State Police, but his brother, Tommy Maskell, uh-huh. was a Baltimore, Baltimore City policeman. Yep. And Maskell himself was close friends with several cops. Gene even recalls Maskell bringing a cop into the room to abuse her. That's what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Even though he said he didn't want to, Maskell encouraged him. 
And if that cop had any pair of balls, he would have been like, all right, hands behind your back, motherfucker. I know. <laughs> like, you know, wh- what the fuck is, did you just tell me to do? But um, it's one of those things where it's the power, the, the hierarchy, you know? Right. Um, Baltimore so- was a heavily a Catholic. It was all Catholic for the most part at that time. Like, everyone was a Catholic. Everyone was a part of the church. And it's never had a great reputation as a city as a whole. Um, even even in recent times, like, there have been, like, riots and all that. I just find it crazy that these women that were abused because of these people who were a part of the church and were abusing the power and these people got away with it, they were still a part of the church. What women? Like like some of the women that were abused. Like like uh for instance, Jean years later, you know, she didn't remember a lot of it because she uh compartmentalized it and just locked it away for years. But even once she it started coming back, she was still very much a part of of, of the Catholic Church. Maybe it's a familiarity thing, possibly. I mean, I I, I wouldn't well, want I, I mean, wouldn't I, want anything to do with it after I you know what happened with the trial and all this other stuff later where they just covered shit up. I'd be like, well, I don't, find another church then. Go go be a I Christian. Something about uh, the Catholic Church, like it it. I think it's like the rituals they like like drill into your head at, for, at a young age. Like it's 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 uh it's really hard for a lot of uh Catholics it seems like to like uh fully renounce you know mm-hmm. they call it like the Catholic guilt you know even even when you're old older and you left the church, you still you know have guilt pro- about it sounds like the Catholic Church is very similar to Scientology in terms of like the cult like aspects of it because there's guilt of with Scientologists too when they leave. It's a similar well, yeah, sort well, that's of thing. that's mainly because they are no longer allowed to talk to their family anymore. Mm-hmm. And de- declared suppressive. It persons. seems like excommunication can happen too within. Well, yeah, the I mean, Catholic Church, but you know, the, the parent. Anyway, I got to get through this fucking article <laughs> if we ever plan on finishing this anytime soon. <laughs> Finally, one student confided in Sister Kathy, and Kathy eventually asked Jean about the abuse too. Jean confided in her that at the end of the school year, and Kathy told her she would take care of it. But at the beginning of the next school year, Sister Kathy and Sister Russell got permission to leave Keo mm-hmm. and to live outside of the convent in an apartment and to teach in public school, mm-hmm. partly so that they could, quote, be out in the world and help understand more what their students' lives were like. Yeah. Jerry Koob, the former priest Sister Russell called the night of Kathy's disappearance, also confides that at this time he and Kathy had grown close and realized that they were soulmates. But when he proposed that he leave the priesthood and she skip her final vows and they get married instead, she turned him down. Oh boy, how life would have been different had she not turned him yeah. down. Yeah. The day she the day she was killed, Kathy had told Jerry there was something serious she wanted to talk to him about. He assumed it was to reopen the conversation about marriage. But now he realizes more likely she was going to tell him about the abuse at Keogh. Like the interviews uh, with Jerry, like you definitely sympathize with him. Like that was a really big loss for that man. 
Well, I hate to spoil anything for you, Mike, but people start turning against Jerry in uh, later episodes. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mr. Investig- later on, Mr. Old Man Investigator in the Attic Guy is like, uh, he's like, I don't trust that guy as far as I could throw him. I think he knows a lot more than what, you know. It's it's like the typical thing where, like, nobody knows That who sounds did like what. a bunch of bullshit to me, like grasping at straws. <laughs> Right, it's like no one knows anything, so then everyone just starts pointing fingers at each other, like, oh, you you were there, and you know more, because then they start focusing on Sister Russell and saying she knew more than what she oh. was saying, and it's like, well, who the fuck is it, you know, <laughs> like, jeez, you're just, just assuming everyone did some shit at some point, you know, I guess that's how they keep the documentary interesting, though. Uh, fast forward to November 1969, two days before Kathy went missing, one of the abused students, as of right now, anonymous, and her boyfriend went to the sister's apartment to visit, but fathers Maskell and Magnus burst into the apartment without knocking. The student recalls that, quote, Maskell looked furious, but, quote, Magnus looked dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought that was was funny. I'm sorry. Like it's just... One's like, huh, and one's like, duh. <laughs> I mean, like, what kind of... Recollection is that like it's an I, odd juxtaposition there of yeah. uh, one of them looked really mad and the other looked really dumb. <laughs> that almost sounds like a recollection from Beavis and Butthead. It sounds like that kind of thing. Uh, Mouthful looked furious and uh, Magnus looked stupid. <laughs> uh, Kathy sent the student and her boyfriend away. But the next day, Maskell allegedly told the couple he'd kill both of them and their whole families if they talked. Back at Keogh, Jean explains that Maskell called her into his office and he frantically told her Kathy was missing. But then he said he knew where she was and he could take her there. He drove her to the woods where she saw one of Kathy's shoes on the ground and then her body. Quote, there were maggots on her face, Jean recalls, saying... Saying she kept wiping Kathy's face and crying, please help me, please help me. At that point, she says Father Maskell bent down to her and said, you see what happens when you say bad things about people? That is just stomach churning, that whole recollection that she shares there. Like, oh my god. It's like something out of a horror film. Like, But it actually happened. So that's... <laughs> You know, they, they could have cut to part two a lot quicker than yeah. they did, uh, given your yeah. whole episode one just being like, okay, okay. And then it's like, okay, now there's stuff here that's actually, like, compelling. Yeah, I agree. So now we get to part three. So episode three is called The Revelation. Uh, the second episode of The Keepers ended with such a dramatic bomb blast that uh, they then uh, started to have the dust settle in with this... Uh, part um gene harrigan uh harrigan winners a macabre description of the final minute of episode two complete with a black and white reenactment which honestly gave me night of the living dead vibes for some reason because of the black and white and because of just kind of the angles and just kind of the way that things were shot i liked the reenactments i thought it, it, it yeah, added they were good so uh of an afternoon in November 1969, his heart in her throat TV. Yeah, I agree. She claimed that she was led into the woods by Father Maskell, taunted with the dead body of Sister Kathy. And then, you know, he said, you see what happens when you say bad things about people. 
When the Huffington Post published a long-form story about the same case two years ago, writer Laura Bassett opened the piece of the shocking incident. All right, whatever, at Entertainment Weekly, let's get to the actual summary. So that's when they talk about, I guess, Deep Throat uh, is the one where there's like a cliff, the cliffhanger in this episode is some guy named Deep Throat. Porn has forever ruined that term for me. <laughs> So, uh, despite the incalculable horror that uh, Gene describes living through as a teenager, the episode uh, chronicles the humongous support of her family. Uh, that includes her husband, Mike, uh, who she calls a lifesaver. Uh, her two children, Sarah and Greg, plus a cadre of brothers and sisters who, like Hoskins and Chobb, also moonlight as det- detectives to help discover the truth. Uh, yeah, it does a good... This is the one where Gene starts to... Recover her memories. The, it, it gives you more backstory on Jean and who she is. Talks about her family. Talks about when she met her husband, Mike. Uh, and then it talks about once the moments when her memory starts to come back. When, when her repressed memories break through. And it, it's it's pretty rough and pretty heartbreaking. Because can you imagine that? Can you imagine living a good chunk of your life like everything's normal, everything's fine, I've got a loving, supportive family, uh, I'm a big pillar of, of my community, everyone's tight-knit, everyone's close, things just seem like they are as amazing and as great as they possibly can be, despite the fact that, you know, some things could be better, like anyone's lives, but everything is is fairly normal, and then you just have these just disturbing memories of uh, a priest masturbating in the confessional or the uh, abuse where you are being abused and raped numerous times by priests. Like it would just be something that would just shatter your life, would shatter you. You you just spend the rest of your time just trying to pick yourself back up and trying to put yourself back together. And you would question things. You would be like, am I crazy? Like, where is all of this coming from? And then just imagine what it does to those around you. Because they talk about the meetings that she would have. And the moment when she has a breakthrough and she starts saying, I killed her. I loved her and I killed her. I killed Sister Kathy. And just, just imagine like just being there in that room like, it, it, it's just something that it's just so tragic and so harrowing and you feel so much for, for Jean. You, you don't want anyone to have to go through anything remotely close to what she went through. Right. I agree. So, uh, it was a chance meeting with a real estate agent and former high school classmate in 1992 that caused her to have these purges uh, the another episode takes a deep dive into the amnesia and the psychological basis, which is episode four, if I remember correctly. Um, she's talking about how it was like ripping masks off your face and looking in the mirror as you you're doing it, and I thought that was a really poignant a way for her to describe it. Maybe poignant isn't the right w- word. Vivid, yeah, it was a very vivid and interesting way. It's just like just pulling off a mask and then there's a mask underneath that and there's another mask underneath that one. 
Uh, where uh, Jean and her siblings uh, recall a family meeting in the 90s where she had the moment where she uh, said that she killed Sister Kathy. Um, the episode doesn't spell out the fact that she killed her, of course. It's just the guilt that she triggered a series of events that led to Kathy's death. Although it kind of did it was kind of edited in a way where it kind of tried to keep you maybe thinking that might be the case. Like it took a while before it's like, Oh, but really, no, she didn't actually admit that she killed sister Kathy. It's all about guilt. She thinks that she killed her because, uh, she went to her for help. And then Kathy said she was going to do something. And then Kathy wound up dead, but it felt like the episode took a little bit, uh, longer to come to that rel- that revelation. Like it was, it was trying to take a sweet time a little bit to kind of steer you in that direction before it was like, oh no, 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 we're not, we're not saying that, but we we want to keep you watching. So we kind of are saying that, <laughs> which I find annoying, an annoying tactic. Yeah. Um. Then uh, you have the the lawyer uh uh for uh. This other woman, I think it's a Jane Roe. So this is where you introduce this other uh, uh, victim of, of the abuse. Uh, Beverly Wallace describes the deluge of letters that she received from other students. Beverly Wallace is uh, Jean's lawyer. Uh, and the they talk about Spotlight a, a little bit. They name check the Boston um, Globe Church abuse uh, article. Uh, as in Boston, the other victims were inspired to share their stories once the door was creaked open. In Baltimore, a classified ad was placed in a newspaper, and Jean's family mailed a thousand uh, letters to former alumni of uh, Archbishop Keogh. In fascinating detail, Wainer's uh, adolescent nephews are described as praying over the letters before they went into the mailbox. I don't know if it's really fascinating. Uh, Entertainment Weekly. Uh, Ter- Teresa Lancaster is one of those who responded and her testimony is equal to Jean's uh, in, in terms of how frightening it is I can tell you stuff you won't believe that Father Maskell did and a docuseries that certainly doesn't lack for horrific descriptions of rape and abuse the most ghoulish so far might be Lancaster's retelling of her experience on Halloween night in 1970 she alleges that Maskell took her into a wooded area and she was raped by police officers Absorb that timeline, October 31st, 1970. That's exactly one year after Sister, Ka- Sister Kathy went missing. So that that adds further weight to the idea that it's a deep conspiracy. Like, it's a deeply embedded cover-up. The police are in on it. Which makes sense, because, you know, Maskell, his brother is in the department. He's the police chaplain. And, you know... In any profession, there are people who are a part of it who are kind of fucked up. So this enables them to be able to be sick and twisted and to do these fucked up things and these awful acts under the you know under a protective shell in a lot of ways, the shell of the church. Mixed in with with the shell of uh, law enforcement, it's a pretty strong shell. Yeah. 
So sure. then you have uh, Sister Mary Lita. Um, she's a, a nun. Apparently, she was this no nonsense sister who was appointed principal of Archbishop Keo. Because this is the bit where they're talking about what happened to Maskell afterwards. Like, what? Where did he go? What is going on? Well, he was at Archbishop Keo until 1975 when she started hearing complaints of parent from parents at the school about the way that Maska was treating the kids. And apparently she took immediate action and she was just like, you have 15 minutes to pack your things and get out. <laughs> so she was definitely uh, a no nonsense lady. Uh, just like, get the fuck out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Of course, she probably didn't say it that way, but it would have been awesome if she was. It was like, just get the fuck out. Get out of here, you sick fuck. <laughs> so uh, she also could have alerted law enforcement, but she didn't uh, know. We don't know for sure that she was really aware of the the severity or, or the full details of what happened. But it's nice to see that there was somebody who took action. Right. Um, the episode then jumps ahead in the timeline to describe an interview that Father Masco gave to the Baltimore Sun newspaper in 1994. He said that it was hysterical nonsense is how the priest's uh, uh, stance was described. Uh, this is after a new round of allegations that had been leveled against him and the church was taking action by sending him to rehab for all the stress he was experiencing because of the accusations. Oh, poor guy. Yeah, poor, poor Masco. Mass hole. Yeah, of course. He was, this is hysterical nonsense. Uh, the article by Robert A. Erlinson and Joe Naz- Narorowski supplies a backstory in Masco, but very few quotes with the man. One of the most tantalizing contributions in the article comes from a woman, woman named Attila Marasa, who worked in the high school's office. I think Father Masco is above reproach and upstanding priest. All this crap that's coming out about priests is just to get money from the Catholic Church. She's quoted as having said, If it happened to me, I would have reported it at once, and you can bet your bippy on that. I love it. I bet your bippy. <laughs> yeah, they even titled that that part of the article, Bet Your Bippy. I would have gone right away to the Archdiocese. Don't wait 25 years. The girls could have told their parents right away and gotten a lawyer and reported to the Archdiocese. <sighs> I love these, uh, these, these, these people who are so uh, no nonsense and matter of fact. Like, like life just works that way for everyone. Yeah. Like everyone, everyone is just as you know concrete and empirical and as you time, are. At the same time, you are t- speaking about this from the outside. You're speaking about it from a total outsider's perspective. You are not the one that was raped and abused numerous times to the point where you were being psychologically manipulated to the point where you wouldn't go for help. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't go to the lawyer. You wouldn't go to anything because you would be afraid that you would die because there was that whole thought in her head that if she went out to say anything, she would, she would be killed. That's like those same people. Like when someone uh, commits suicide, they're like, Man, why they're they're so stupid for committing suicide? Why would they do that? I would never do that. And it's like, yeah, you wouldn't. But you're not them. You're not in their brain. You don't you don't have the same experiences no. they have. You don't know what's going on there in in their fucking head. 
Good, good for you that you turned out so fucking well. How about you have some apathy or not empathy? Apathy, some empathy, empathy. Yeah, apathy is what yeah, you do. Don't not have, have apathy. <laughs> have some empathy for for these victims. Oh, I just bet you're bippy on that. It would have been reported at once. <laughs> yeah, sure. I just looked it up. Bippy, U.S. slang, used euphemistically for an unspecified part of the body, generally understood as equivalent to butt or ass. So that's what a bippy is. That's definitely a term you don't hear anymore. That is something an old man or lady would say. So, yeah, just, uh, it's just so frustrating that the people who, like, don't believe... Or, or or think that the victims are making it up, or oh, I would have. It would have been different if I was. A... Why are you making it about you anyway? Right. Like, just shut the fuck up. <laughs> old people are the worst. It's not just old people. Like, there are a lot of people nowadays that just when you have these stories of abuse or some of these other things that come out, and then they're all like, "Well, if it was me, it's like I don't care about." If it was you, that doesn't matter here. Just just stick to the facts. Uh, people people relate to things through uh, relating it to to what to themselves. Basically, it's like uh, this is some weird thing. I was hanging out with this girl, and she had this leg boot on because her she had broken her leg in uh-huh. very gnarly ways. Yeah, and um, I hung out with her almost the whole night, and what I noticed was anytime she would uh, come in contact with someone, the first thing they ask is, oh, what happened to your leg? She would tell them, and then almost every single time, the person would share something that happened to them and how they hurt themselves and how they... they it's almost like they're trying to, like... Uh, either sympathize with her yeah. or one-up her in her yeah. injury, and, and it was a weird thing because i never really you know i've never had a, a cast or any broken limb yeah. or anything so i've never had that but but like hanging around someone like that's like wow literally every single person is sharing with this girl injuries that they sustained mm-hmm. and how they broke their whatever the fuck whenever the fuck and it's like geez that's that's a weird it part is. of human psychology it is and and i'll admit this sometimes i have done the same thing josh has probably done the same thing we've all had our moments like that but I think it's one of those things, if you're writing or, or or you are going to have your words in writing, maybe you should like think twice about trying to twist things and make it about you. Right. All right. So going into episode four and home stretch, the burial, Lord Jesus, and it might as well be a burial of the of the the series because like it just it just seems like it goes downhill from here, right? It was certainly a burial of any interest I had in this uh, docu series. Like episode four is 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 such a dull, boring episode to sit through. It's incredible the amount of heat my body can generate when sitting in the same sp- yeah. spot for more than like an hour and a half. I am like yeah. s- fucking burning That's up. It's like an hour and seven minutes is in this episode or something. I don't remember. So in the burial. In its first three hours, the Keepers has pulsed with a low growl menace akin to psychological horror movies. I would, I would, oh, I would just... Let's, let's pump the brakes on that one, Entertainment yeah, Weekly. Yeah, I would just... Uh, yeah this first half because weekly is just like I, they're not even they're just inserting their own nonsense start with the, oh, okay. the apostle paul 
So in last episode's recap, I linked to the obituary of Dr. Christian Richter, the gynecologist who we find out who here was included as a defendant in the Jane Doe and Jane Rose ultimately unsuccessful lawsuit. But now we also hear about Paul McHugh, pseudo intellectual psychiatrist this at John fucking Hop- guy. <laughs> Johns Hopkins uh, Hospital, who megaphones his virulent anti-LGBT views to aid the Catholic Church in sex abuse cases. A self-described, quote, Orthodox Catholic, uh, he was instrumental in getting the 1994 lawsuit dismissed. For years, McHugh has asserted that homosexuality is the root case of child sex abuse in the church, in his church. Presumably, per that logic, McHugh would assist in exonerating a priest like Father Maskell because he targeted females. But at the same time, like this guy, like this this son of a bitch, <laughs> this guy's such a fucking jerk off. Uh, they have like footage of this guy from the trial, and he's just laughing off. Uh, he's very smug. He's, very he's smug. a smug son of a bitch. And he's just laughing off this woman's just repressed memories like they're just fake and bullshit and he's turning it into a joke getting like the courtroom to laugh uh-huh. it's just despicable like like i hate I, I wanted to like jump through the screen and just smack this guy <laughs> unsurprisingly McHugh would not agree to be interviewed oh, for yeah. the keepers no a life a lifetime of being a toady and sycophant might have caught up with him in McHugh's uh, dotage, he's 86, the man perhaps has finally discovered a sense of oh, shame. No. Absolutely not. Highly unlikely L- for someone like him. Lee Richmond was a professor at Johns Hopkins who became friends with Father Maskell in 1982 after he took a course on community counseling. She mentions that she was once planning on visiting him in 1990 when he explained he was busy burying a bunch of old office files in, in his cemetery. Huh? <laughs> Is that what your friends do on the weekends? Yeah, I thought that was that that was pretty uh, strange, to say the least. It's like, oh no, I'm just burying some uh, papers in the cemetery. You know, it's like, uh, wait, what? What? <laughs> You're burying like, what? <laughs> like, ha- have these people not heard of like starting fires? You know, like that kind of you know eliminates. Yeah, papers. but at the same time, it's like. Like, how deluded do you have to be to think that, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm gonna be able to get away with that. (laughs) I'm able to. Well, I mean, you should say to a cop, hey, yeah, have at her. You know, I mean, clearly the delusion is pretty heavy. The delusion is very heavy. Uh, The anonymous Baltimore detective known as Deep Throat, uh, whose voice has been altered so that he sounds like Robocop with laryngitis. Okay, that was that was their joke, not mine. Uh, uh, the, he, I actually did kind of think that for a second, like when I was watching it and with with uh, Deep Throat. No wonder they have fucking subtitles. Like without the subtitles, dear God, you ain't gonna understand a single fucking word the guy's saying. Funny thing is, I could go and pitch shift his voice up to a probably what he's supposed <laughs> to sound like. For nerds like me, that whole uh, masking the voice with just by making it deeper is not. Uh, that's not really covering them up like, with uh, the sh- the the shadows though. That still works. That's still effective. Yeah, yeah, to, yeah. For the most part. Um, so Deep Throat has uh, goes on to say um, 
that there were nude photographs of girls among the files. He said that's a typical pedophile. Or like your deep throat. It's a typical pedophile. A pedophile, a pedophile cannot separate from his collection. Even if he can't get even, to it, he knows it's there. <laughs> so I guess that explains my whole, well, why doesn't he just burn it? Well, because he wanted to keep yep. it. He just wanted it hidden. Mm-hmm. It's like these serial um, killers who keep trophies. Right. There was enough to arrest Maskell on the spot, he says, but, quote, the division chief ran interference with the church. And uh, Deep Throat's comment about the division uh, chief leads into this episode's more fascinating, tough-to-decipher interview. I don't know if it was Share- that fascinating. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's... the Okay, so does Sharon A.H. May... Uh, was kind of the one that was supposedly running interference for the church, and she's painted as, like, the villain. But when then when they interview her, though, I'm just like, I mean, you know, she's kind of making some points. Yeah, it, to me, she didn't seem like a villain at all. She just seemed like no, the devil's advocate she, and actually did a good job providing a different perspective. Yeah, she seems very, very no nonsense to me. Yeah. And I, I, she's like, look, I'm not Catholic. You know, this isn't my religion. I, I wasn't, you know, she's like, no one's, you know, I, I don't know. She had that like sassy attitude at the end when she gave her statement, kind of like a finger snap, like, bitch. Like, yeah. I, <laughs> like I don't know. I kind of like, I kind of like felt like she was telling the truth. But anyway, uh, so this Sharon May worked for the state's attorney's office from 83 to 2004, and she describes going to Holy Cross Cemetery on the day that the files were exhumed. And she says, to my recollection, there was nothing found. Uh, at first, May appears to be bobbing and obfuscating in her guarded, I do not recall answers to director Ryan White. I don't Qu- see it that way, but Okay. <laughs> But uh, have we become too accustomed to enablers of violence in Baltimore flying out of the hornet's nest that we as an audience project a sense of guilt onto May's statements? Mm-hmm. Was, she, was she also involved in a conspiracy to protect Maskell from the law? No way, she says. I was not to be intimidated, May remarks, adding for good measure that uh, she is not, not now and has never been a Catholic. But in four episodes of The Keepers, there's not been a person's face that has been studied as closely as May's. Either she's telling the truth or she's not telling the truth. And if it's the latter, what stories must she have? And in the episode's most moving segment, we learn that Teresa Lancaster, the Jane Roe from the 94 lawsuit against the church, received her law degree at age 49. And it's at this point where she evokes the Freddie Gray case, allowing Lancaster's voice to trace the reverberations of injustice and pain from decades ago to today. It's an ambitious leap for the keepers to make, but one that feels rightly earned. And this is the episode where a lot of it is this recap of the trial that yeah. that uh, ultimately led to nowhere because the statute of limitations and just the whole, oh, it it isn't real. Repressed memories are bullshit. It's all uh, uh, something that's in your head that's created by a psychiatrist or so on. And uh, this is around the time when repressed memories were under fire and were considered to be something that was questionable in terms of evidence for uh, accusations of these type of this type. And, and, and understandably so, because it ties into 
something that we covered for a multi-part series uh, years ago on the podcast when we talked about Satanic Panic. Like, that ties into that because that's where a lot of the repressed memories thing was uh, coming from. It's where people were very leery of it because of what happened with uh, that particular case and with all these other cases that involved these instances of satanic ritual abuse, but then you find out that it's all made up and it never really happened. What was that stupid book I had to read, uh, which was the finale of our satanic (laughs) panic? Uh, Michelle Remembers. (laughs) Michelle Remembers, yeah. I'm glad I forgot. That one, which is all fiction, but, you know, they tried to make it off as being um, legit and real. I thought it was interesting, but not something that I would read ever again because of the fact that it's just so obviously fake (laughs) and and, and just insane in in terms of the level of uh, ridiculousness that that it would try uh, try to posit as fact in terms of the levels of abuse that 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 occurred but i mean if people are basing their opinion on repressed memories based on stuff like that then i can see why they would question uh jean's recollections or her memories from from uh years ago but i don't think that that really should have led to the case being dismissed and essentially laughed off You definitely felt for uh, uh, Jean a lot because uh, it was one of those things where she put herself out there, she answered the questions, she did all of this, people essentially laughed it off, and the case didn't really lead to anything. The trial led to nowhere, and she felt even more ostracized from her family and her community as a result. And and on top of that, now you got lawyers' fees. Yeah, and those um, are expensive. And I wanted to mention one thing, like Joyce Joyce Malecki, like they mentioned her in like the first episode, and I think there's a little bit in the second, but then like you don't really hear that much about Joyce Malecki at all in episodes three and four. So it's like, do we even did we even need to bring up the Joyce Malecki case? Part of me is thinking that it's only brought up because of the fact that it's a part of the Facebook group that that probably spurred this entire series because these plucky old gals investigating this decades-old cold case. And uh, the name of the Facebook group is group Justice for Sister Kathy and Joyce Malecki. So they're like, oh, we got to talk about Joyce Malecki too. Seems like there isn't as much there. But I haven't gotten farther into the series, so there might be more. Uh, they they bring her brothers in, um, I think, in the last episode for like a, a few minutes, but it's they they never really circle back to yeah. it. Why even? Why even bring that up? Yeah, it was just you know on the docu series that I've seen. Uh, this one is is very much towards the bottom of the list. It's ju- it just. It was. It had its moments, but like I said, this could have easily been boiled down into like a ninety-minute thing or a, 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 like a two-hour thing mo- at most. We are probably in the minority. 
when it comes. What a lot of people like. Yeah, it. a lot of people like the keepers. Really? Like a lot of people praise the keepers when it came out. I don't see like an like, approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes of like ninety seven percent. What the fuck? Average rating of like eight point four out of ten on IMDb. You know that kind of thing. Uh, reviews not like, uh, like some guy from Vice. It's harrowing and upsetting. Will haunt you for a long time, which is part of what makes it necessary viewing. Um, someone compared from Time compared it to making a murderer. They said, uh, the Keepers does not lead its viewers to a definite conclusion about what happened. While Sister Kathy says Nick's death remains a mystery, its after effects include both crushing heartbreak and for the amateur sleuths who seek to crack her case, sense of making a difference. This just isn't more respectful to the victim than other true crime stories with their breathless delight at new clues. It's also more effective. I don't know how it's more effective. Where other true crime hits have followed a linear chronology, Keepers hops between 1969, the 90s, and today, striking a fine balance between narrative structure, a wild moment at the end of every episode, and respect for a subject that doesn't need to be need or deserve sensationalism. Well, I could argue that by stretching this out to seven fucking episodes, you are making it into an instance of sensationalism. Yeah, the, I mean, there's a part, I, th- I want to say in like episode five or maybe six where they pretty much like are, they pretty much have it figured yeah, out. Yeah, they bring up who- some suspects and that's when episode four leaves off where you're kind of like, oh, uh, Bob? That's when, that's when they bring yeah. in Bob as a possible... Yeah. Suspect. Yeah, they 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 pretty much point you to yeah. like these are probably the individuals that that did it, um, and they interview one of them, and this guy is like duller than a fucking drawer of knives that are really dull. Well, I mean, uh, deep <laughs> that was throat, an awful analogy. Deep throat isn't much better either. Well, neither is the one cop that they talked to at the beginning, who's like, uh. Oh, I don't think no one will know me anymore of the, the police station. I yeah, think that's who it is. I, I, that guy was fucking. That guy was dim. Sniffed too many paint fumes. <laughs> um. He, all right. Well, I'm not gonna go there. Well, like maybe he had some reason to 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 be in that state. Maybe he had. There's something that happened to him. I don't know. We don't get those details. All right. Well, we're closing in on uh, almost two hours well, here, and I gotta take. I mean, it was gonna be that way. I mean, it's a fucking multiple part series yeah i know <laughs> this is always gonna be a long one folks <laughs> so we're gonna give you your happy ending in a few weeks with the conclusion of our opinions of uh episodes five six and yeah. seven um so make sure you stick around for that in the meantime if you want to join our facebook fan page uh just go to facebook ter- uh search uncovering unexplained mysteries and uh you should be able to find our group fairly easily uh it's a very awesome community of active members who chat and bake each other cookies i assume that happens i have no proof that 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 actually happens um if you want to donate to our patreon you see what kind of damage you can wreak on our podcast um deidre thank you very much um uh, <laughs> you can go patreon.com slash uncovering unexplained mysteries 
And for uh, $5 a month, uh, not only do you uh, sometimes get the podcast early, but you get a, you can dictate to us what you want us to talk about as long as it's not another uh, multi-part series. Um, and finally, if you like me and Mike, but maybe you don't want us to talk about true crime and you want us to be more separate from one another, you can uh, follow us on our own individual YouTube pages. Mike's YouTube page is... Uh, YouTube.com slash OCP Communications. That is YouTube.com slash OCP Communications. He's a big, big, big movie guy. He loves talking about movies. What's the last video you the did, The last Mike? video I did is a review of uh, a film that was a box office failure and a critical disaster called Mortal Engines. It's a film that Peter Jackson produced. came out in 2018. Uh, it was based on a series of young adult novels that were pretty popular uh, enough to basically inspire a lot of other young adult uh, dystopian apocalyptic novels that would come out afterwards. Like, it deals with these bands of roving cities that attack one another, takes place uh, after uh, a apocalyptic event uh, where like a good chunk of the globe is like blown up and it's like a steampunk future, so you have a lot of steampunk uh, aesthetic going on. It, it was a flop. Critics really hated it. I don't understand why it was so reviled. I actually liked it. Um, so I share my thoughts on that. I also uh, did a review of Brightburn, uh, which came out, uh, I think, like like three years ago in 2019. It was like a different take on a superhero origin story. Like, what if Superman was evil? That kind of thing. We're like, oh, he, he crashed to Earth and he was adopted by the by these uh, humans, but then like he was just evil. They beat him. No, not that's not what happened. He just turned evil. Like, like it wasn't as well handled as it could have been, but it was interesting. And uh, in honor of Bruce Willis's retirement, I've been doing a Bruce Willis marathon. So uh, if you're a fan of Bruce Willis, uh, I'm going to have a lot of Bruce Willis uh, films and, and reviews uh, coming up. So, Sixth Sense and Pulp Fiction. Those are my two Bruce picks. Uh, I'll, I'll probably check. I actually haven't seen either one all the way through yet. What? What the fuck? I know. How do you consider yourself a movie guy? I know. That is insane. I've seen Hudson Hawk numerous times, The Last Boy Scout. Um, Mike, I'm catching up. I've been watching a lot of movies lately. Yeah, have you nah. seen Blind Date with Bruce Willis? Like the first film he ever he would starred in with Kim Basinger. Uh, I don't think that'd be my cup of tea. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, that's Mike's channel. If you want to check out my channel, I do more music related content. I'm reviewing albums. I'm doing little biographies and little uh, video essays on certain topics. I am. Uh, you know what? What? What happened to this artist? The downfall, that kind I'm of shit. I'm interested in I, a, your Weird Al video because I'm a big fan of his. So, and uh, I also post my band's original music on my YouTube channel. It is YouTube.com/slash/dancingwithghosts. Once again, that's YouTube.com/slash/dancingwithghosts. The last video I did. Um, you kind of have to be probably a bit younger and more in the know on the internet to even know who this guy is, but my last video was entitled What Happened to Oliver Tree. 
Oliver Tree was kind of this alternative rock slash hip hop artist who had a bowl cut, wore Jinko jeans and this pink and purple yeah. sweater. And he's kind of like a meme lord, but his music was actually legitimately good. And he did this last album uh, called Cowboys Don't Cry, and he completely changed his image, and he completely changed his sound, and it's, like, completely garbage now. And I'm just like, why the fuck are you doing this, dude? <laughs> like, I took your... Like, he wanted his music to be taken seriously. Like, his image and all was a goof, but his music, uh-huh. he always wanted to be taken... Now his music doesn't even sound serious. He has a song called Cowboys Don't Cry, It's and it's not, like... He's not playing it, like, straight. He's He's... You know, uh-huh. it's tongue in cheek. So it's like, what the fuck is wrong with you, dude? I saw that anyway, video. That's the last and I thought you did a really good job with that. I'm not really that Thanks. familiar with the topic, but it was still entertaining and and interesting. And I'm with you. I don't get why somebody would take such a sharp, creative turn this early in their yeah, career. I, like this is like the kind get- of thing that happens like near the twilight of your career when you're like, I gotta do something different. So I can get back on the charts. You know, that's the kind of thing that happens sometimes. Like not like this early in your career. Like we're just gonna take such a. It's quick his second album. It's his switch. second fucking full length album, yeah. and it's like, it's like, goddamn, dude! Like you literally just alienated like so much of your fan base by doing that. Like I get that rocking. Uh, the bowl cut, the Jico jeans, and you know that whole. You don't image even have gonna... to do that image. You could do the cowboy th- shtick, but have the same style. Right. Do, but you know, <laughs> that's such a crazy image. I don't know. The whole thing was just a big misstep, if you ask me. The Weird Al video I'm working on is um, I, I'm just doing a ranking video Ooh, of all cool. of his albums. Yeah. Cool. Um, it's a little bit. It's more of one of my lazier videos. <laughs> There's not not going to be as much production and editing. I like a lot of like, his uh, later, you know, uh, albums like in the 2000s and like the 90s, like the late yeah, 90s, that, the early 80s stuff. I'm not super, but not not. I mean, the mid 80s, late 80s. Like I'm not super huge on those ones. Although I do like some tracks from them. You have to have either grown up in that time or you had to have been a fan of the bands that he's doing parodies of. Um, I I, I even like like his weird uh, polka thing uh, that he did called Nature Trail to Hell. Like, I actually really like that one. (laughs) Nature Trail to Hell. Yeah, he's I mean, he's got he's got um, he's got some some good some hidden gems on those old 80s albums for sure. I don't like Dare to be Stupid, though. I hate that song. Well, that's supposed to be a pastiche, a pastiche of uh, Devo and how how they I sound. Know. So it's just so annoying. <laughs> it's such an annoying. I don't know. Song. I I, th- I think it's kind of a fun song, but I, I don't know. I I just Weird Al is just total nostalgia for yeah. me. Like I grew up like that was one of the only non Christian artists I was allowed to listen to. So like he like Trojan horse yeah. all this like secular music into my into my purview because I didn't know. Because I would I would get the cassette liner notes yeah. and I would read you know original song was you know do you cover the UHF soundtrack too yeah okay yeah yeah I put that one um, I think that one got, went into the C tier because a lot of the songs in there are uh, either not good or um, they're just skits yeah. and they're not really songs yeah. um, like uh, uh, like. 
Isle thing, yeah, which which is a parody of Wild yeah. Thing, and that's not even and, in the movie, if I remember correctly. So there, there no, are it's some not. of those tracks that I don't remember ever hearing. But that was like one of his weakest fucking parodies I've yeah. ever heard. It's like a, a parody about how you're watching Gilligan's Island in, uh-huh. instead of, uh, you know, whatever. Yeah, the fuck, it almost like sounds that. like something that might have been like in a deleted scene like maybe another music video parody in the vein of the beverly hillbillies thing but then maybe the the studio or like hey too many music videos <laughs> even the polka on that album yeah. is just him doing a bunch of rolling stones songs yeah. and like that wasn't in the movie no. the only thing that like redeems that album is the song itself uhf and the biggest ball of twine in minnesota yeah, i forgot that, a, that a gen- i forgot that that one was from that album <laughs> that's a, a genuinely hilarious song it, it really is he opened his. Sh- we went to see his strings attached tour uh-huh. like a few years ago, yeah. and he opened with the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota. <laughs> and he had he all he had all this like images behind him of the actual biggest yeah. ball of twine in Minnesota. Yeah, and uh, it was so fucking. Um, <laughs> it was it was so like like uh, just uh, absurdist. I'm just imagining avant garde like, if he perform this during like his like super heyday when it had like a budget for tours like there's just a big giant ball of twine dude i'm actually gonna be seeing him i'm gonna be seeing him later this year and um he's basically gonna be doing like his deep cuts and shit that Mm -hmm. like 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 his originals and stuff like that so i'm like really excited for that yeah Anyway, guys, uh, <laughs> I've had a, I've had enough of you all. Quite frankly, I need to take a shower. I smell bad. So until <laughs> till next time, have a good rest of your night. Talk to you later. Bye. See ya.